You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McClendon. And if my voice sounds a little bit different this week, it's only because I'm brushing up on my Batman impression. You know, Kevin, I had a question for you. Do you ever dance with the devil in the pale moonlight? Short answer, no. Long answer, yes. <laughs> Listeners, today we are reviewing the new film from Todd Phillips, Joker. And we're also going to be reviewing another genre entry, this time from Japan. We're going to be talking about Takashi Miike's new film, First Love. It's clowns and katanas on this episode, episode 220 of Seeing and Believing. Is something funny? I used to think that my life was a tragedy. Now I realize it's a comedy. You just that is a clip from Joker. We're going to jump into our review here in just a moment. But Kevin, I was I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about my short run as a stand-up comedian. And there, there was a few highs. One low was doing a comedy set after a charity golf tournament. After everyone had gone out in the heat during the summer and played golf and did not want to laugh. That was probably the low. And I wanted to ask you, have you ever done stand-up comedy? Or do you just kind of regulate yourself to improv? Because I know you do improv. Yeah, no, I, I I like improv. The the nice thing about improv is you're on stage with a group of people, so if you start to bomb, you have a whole group of people kind of who have your back and who can sort of, you know, save you, rescue you, get you off stage. Stand up, I've wondered about, but I've decided, you know, it's safer to for a guy to just know his limits. So I I've never really taken that plunge, which frankly is probably the best for everyone. Well, me quitting was probably the best <laughs> for everyone. So we'll just we'll leave it at that. Listeners, this week's episode commences with what is considered by many, though not us, to be the most anticipated film of the year. Yes, it's none other than Todd Phillips's Joker. Making a turn from previous comedy outings that include Old School, Starsky and Hutch, and The Hangover, Phillips dives into the dark and twisted mind of Batman's sworn archenemy, the Clown Prince of Crime. Starring Joaquin Phoenix, Joker imagines the DC supervillain as a mentally disturbed aspiring comedian named Arthur Fleck. As you can surmise, throughout the film's runtime, things quickly begin spiraling downward until Fleck fully embraces his dark urges, and propensity for violence. Kevin, many have compared this film to the work of Martin Scorsese, particularly projects like Taxi Driver and The King of Comedy. Joker even stars Robert De Niro in a role that, while short on screen time, is, I would say, high on significance. As I have stated on the show before, Taxi Driver and The King of Comedy are some of my favorite films in general, and my two favorite Scorsese pictures. So, 
because I have the microphone, we're just going to go ahead and start there. Here's my questions to you today. Just what do you make of Joker-Scorsese comparisons, and is this even a helpful way to look at Phillips's gritty new film? Well, I think that a lot of the way that you you read Joker is is intended to be read through the prism of of Scorsese. Like Todd Phillips, he knows what he's doing when he casts Robert De Niro as essentially the inverse of Rupert Pupkin from uh the King of Comedy, you know. De Niro in in this film is obviously playing the role that Jerry Lewis filled in The King of Comedy, the grimy New York of Taxi Drivers is mirrored here by the grimy Gotham City. And Phillips is definitely, he's calling these films out because he wants those, the, the characters in those films and the settings of those films to really be setting the the palette for the themes he's going to be working with here in terms of of social isolation, uh, anomie, the you know disturbed minds of individuals who inhabit kind of these very run down settings or these these sad pathetic lives, and that's something that Phillips is doing intentionally. So I think that it's incumbent on the viewer to take that for for what's worth and kind of use that as part of the buy-in to the film. I don't think that beyond this, the window dressing level, Phillips really knows how to make those references speak <laughs> to to the audience. I mean, they're there to evoke 1970s, 1980s Scorsese films, but they don't really seem to be in dialogue with films like Taxi Driver in any particularly meaningful way other than just saying you know those film that film had a disturbed vigilante kind of character in that one this film also has a disturbed criminal in it and that's really about it and maybe that would be my overall criticism of the film is that Phillips is pretty good for the most part at evoking kind of the surface of a very serious minded film but I don't think that he has a whole lot of insight to impart once he situates us in that reality. And and I think it marks a huge missed opportunity. You know, if you're going to really dig into the backstory of maybe the most iconic comic book villain of all time, you really want to, you know, make sure you don't miss that shot. That's a really big swing. And this film kind of doesn't really seem to have anything to say either about the specific character of the Joker or about the general societal forces that it gestures at without really digging into. Yeah, you know, if you think about Taxi Driver and the the images and the lines that come to mind are when Travis Bickle is kind of just driving around and he is thinking about the streets and the crime and all the individuals that, in his mind, come out at night. And he has that famous line where he says, someday a real rain will come and wash all this scum off the streets. In in Joker, we get Phillips emulating that, but really kind of the best way that he can do that is to essentially say, hey, 
there's literal trash on the streets. And there's something going on to where that trash is not being collected. And I think that's probably a good illustration of, of how this movie works in the sense that it's, it's telling us that there are these problems and it's kind of sharing with us the societal angst of this time period. But that's about it. It's there. It's like trash on the streets, but it's never fully explored. And I think when we, compare this to a Scorsese picture, we get uh, something that lacks a fully realized moral center. And I think that Taxi Driver and The King of Comedy explore these dark characters, but they do it in a way that lends probably excitement to their plight, but we know at the end of the day that they are truly disturbed individuals and we walk away with a better idea of the world at large. And it's not that we don't walk away from the Joker and say, oh yeah, this is a disturbed individual, but there's really no, as I mentioned before, moral center to the movie. It features a considerable amount of violence and disturbing material, but it doesn't have all that much to say about the evil that goes along with these mechanisms. And I think probably that's one of my biggest critiques of this movie. We get to the end of the film and it's okay, well 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 what? Everything is so thin that you could just kind of pull out a couple of big ideas and they're ultimately flimsy. So uh, perhaps society creates these types of individuals, um, rich oppress the poor, and there it is. There it ends. And I, I guess I was just kind of looking for something deeper because, as you mentioned, there's so much material to mine from this character and even from the setting of of Gotham City. Well, there's something that Ebert wrote when he uh, when he reviewed Taxi Driver. I can't remember if it was the review that he wrote at its release, or if maybe it was one of the pieces that he wrote on the film, kind of as a retrospective, maybe as part of his his great movies series. But he talks about how in Taxi Driver, Travis Bickle, um, Scorsese puts the camera. On, on Bickle as he goes about his his day, as he interacts with various people, experiences rejections of various kinds. And Ebert points out that Scorsese is really good at capturing how, at capturing both the kind of the decay of the world around Travis Bickle and how Bickle, quote, allows those things to wound him. And I think that that's kind of what we're missing here in Joker is Joker's obviously Arthur Fleck in this film is is very um, he, he's disturbed and he's he's um, wounded in a lot of ways like he's you know he can't catch a break essentially and, but there's not really any way that Phillips gives us a sense of of, of the way that all of these forces kind of compress down on him and squeeze him into becoming the the villain that we eventually know from uh, our knowledge of just the the Batman universe there's not really the the kind of humanity i guess 
that you see in a film even as hard-bitten as Taxi Driver in Joker. There's there's no scene, for example, where in, in Taxi Driver, there's a scene where Bickle is sitting in his cab. He's taken a an anonymous unnamed passenger, who's incidentally played by Scorsese himself, um, to uh, the outside of a building. And his passenger begins telling him about how... Uh, the passenger's wife is inside that building, currently uh, having an affair with another man, and he, the the passenger begins talking about how much he'd want he wants to hurt his wife and just saying all these horrible things. And the entire time, Scorsese's camera stays on Bickle's face, and as this torrent of you know misogynist abuse comes out of his passenger's mouth, you observe the way that acts upon Bickle about how he feels almost trapped and frozen in that moment and he can't do anything about it and that is an ingredient in the break that comes later in the film in joker there's nothing really that visceral i guess there's there's all these bad things that happen arthur flecky gets beaten up he you know someone he thinks is his friend betrays him he you know has a a relationship that he that doesn't turn out the way that he thinks it will shall we say and those are all unfortunate things but phillips never really finds a way to make that anything more than kind of a series of unfortunate events so when the break does come it doesn't seem so much as like this eruption that was a long time coming it more seems like well this guy's just had a lot of annoyances and disappointments and he just snaps and in fact the character phoenix's character says at one point um, that he he can't stand how people are mean to him all the time, that they're so nasty all the time. Like, why does everybody have to be so mean? And that's kind of, that's a really flimsy foundation to lay the later the joker's later reign of terror like he's he's this embodiment of of you know chaos and and nihilism but phillips the way that he ends up getting characterized in phillips's film is just you know he just wants a father and people weren't very nice to him and that is wholly insufficient to dig into a character like this one and it's not entirely clear to me that Phillips knows that that's a flimsy foundation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and just getting down to the mechanics of it, there, there are some pretty good scenes. But I, I think the plot moves in too many directions. You have a subplot with Murray Franklin, who's played by Robert De Niro. He hosts a late-night television show. And that starts out promising. There's probably the best scene in the film is when Joaquin Phoenix's Joker, Arthur, he's watching this late-night television show, and he imagines himself in the crowd. And there's this whole fantasy that's kind of played out where he finds an individual who gives him attention, who gives him care. And that subplot kind of works its way through the rest of the film. But there's really not much... Other than that, there's not a lot of depth, and I think it's because the film is kind of scattered. You also have Arthur's pursuit of a career in comedy. We do get to see him on stage, but it's very, very short, very underdeveloped. You also have a relationship that Arthur is pursuing 
with a neighbor, and this is rushed as well. And so the film is kind of moving all over. Thomas Wayne is introduced. We have a couple interactions with him, but we really don't dig into these scenes. We don't get that patient filmmaking that you're talking about with Scorsese's picture. And then I think the, the best scenes were the scenes that were real, that were longer. And you get Phoenix's performance. You get to watch him unspool or maybe even, maybe even open up. But most of the scenes in this film come and go too quickly. Near the end of the movie, there's this uh, part where I don't know if you would say it's his breaking point, but it's one of the breaking points for Joker. And he does something and it happens so quick that I felt like the emotional eruption that could have occurred in that scene is evaporated. A lot of tension is evaporated too because we just, we don't get that patient filmmaking. Instead, like you mentioned, uh, just kind of a series of events. Now, some of them are good. Uh, but I would say probably a good chunk of them or most of them are, are rushed. And as a result, and this, this might come as a surprise for some people, but I kind of found this film a little uninteresting. Uh, I wouldn't say bored, but it didn't engage me like I thought it would, even though I, you know, I think that Joaquin Phoenix's performances, you know, I, I think it's pretty good here. I, I want to talk about Phoenix's performance because I think there's a lot of interesting stuff there. I think you're you're spot on when you say though that this really, at bottom, isn't that interesting of a film. And I think it goes back to something else you said about this being kind of a film without a moral center in the sense that you watch this movie and there are transgressive things in it. There's there's plenty of violence. There's we see lots of bad things happening. Um, there's a lot of um, unkindness that we witness on screen, but there, and, and so in one sense, yes, that, that stuff is transgressive, but in a deeper sense, the way that Phillips uh, portrays it, the way that it's filmed, the use of the camera, the editing choices that are made kind of sap any weight from that transgressiveness. So while there's violence on screen, it's not, it doesn't really, land with the same force that it needs to for us to really be uh to to feel kind of that instinctive repulsion at seeing evil on screen it seems almost as if you know when when arthur fleck has his final break where he sort of takes the the big step off the ledge and decides to really commit to a life of violence as opposed to some incidental acts of violence that he's party to earlier. When he finally makes that decision, it doesn't feel so much like something horrible has been done. A line has been crossed. It kind of just seems more like this is what the villain in a movie would do. And which wouldn't necessarily be a problem if this were more like a, like a, an action movie or a comic book movie where it's kind of, it's more genre picture and it's not really seeking to delve deep into the psychology of evil. But Phillips really seems, especially with his explicit allusions to Scorsese, he seems to really want to be digging deep into the psychology of evil. And it's just, it's just an utter failure on that part. It's not, really offensive so much as just 
disappointing and and enervating. There's not really anything there for the audience to feel strongly about other than that. Well, I guess I know how this guy became <laughs> the clown prince of crime, but there's no other payoff to speak of that I see here. Yeah, no, I I I, I do agree with that. And, and there are themes about uh, the upper class versus the lower class and uh, poverty and as i mentioned before the the sort of angst also how do how is evil nurtured or created uh, but all that's kind of lip service and we don't really get into that and so it's i i didn't really walk away feeling like there was much more below the surface i i will say this i thought the cinematography by Lawrence Schur was was pretty good. We get this sort of shallow depth of field, which blurs the line between reality and the mental activity that's going on in authors' minds. So I, I thought that worked pretty well. And then the, the production design by Mark uh, Friedberg really lends itself to that taxi driver vibe this is set in i guess you could say the late 70s early 80s and it looks pretty good we get some some nice slow motion shots uh with joaquin phoenix kind of dancing uh almost this um dance with the devil and i thought some of those scenes were were pretty effective so the look and feel of the movie i'm i i think it's there I just um, I just don't see anything below the surface, and maybe that's kind of what we keep going back to is you know what's below the paint on on the face, and I I'm not sure if there's anything actually there. Yeah, Phillips, I, he's not uh, an inept director, I guess I I would say like there there's some intriguing images that he lands on throughout the film. I, I particularly like one that crops up a couple of times. It's it's one of the first. Um, scenes in the movie actually where we see Arthur Fleck he's returning home he uh, goes into this you know really awful you know tenement building the mailboxes are inside this metal cage and he goes inside it and he he opens up the mailbox he opens up and and uh, Philip's camera shoots kind of uh, from a higher angle and we look down into this utterly barren mailbox and Phoenix Phoenix's performance suggests that he knows it's going to be empty. He opens it, he sees it's barren, he closes it, and he moves on. And that's really there's there's something about that act that I think speaks so much to the kind of life that Fleck is living and the way that he's already been beaten down so much. I think that's really great. Later on in the film, it's sort of like uh, they they really underline it by saying, "Well, oh, they're waiting for a letter from Thomas Wayne," which is uh, maybe it's emblematic of the film in general where it's like they actually have some pretty like that's an interesting shot but then the way that it's contextualized kind of saps it of any spiritual meaning and it's just it's left as almost like a plot point and that's symptomatic of the entire film where there's a lot of raw material there that can be interesting but it's used in the most pedestrian uninteresting way possible i I want. I did want to talk about Phoenix for a little bit because I think you're right that it is a good performance. I don't think I, I'm in the weird position of wondering how Phoenix can simultaneously give 
a pretty good performance in this film while also feeling to me a little bit miscast. When, when I think about Phoenix, he, he strikes me as a very emotionally vulnerable actor, even in his more villainous roles. I think of him in, in like uh, James Gray's The Immigrant or uh, even in Gladiator where he's, you know, he plays these terrible characters, but there's this uh, very raw vulnerability, this raw emotional core to him that he lets show and that really brings the view, draws the viewer into uh, a relationship with that character. Whether we like him or dislike him, we have a relationship with him. And I, th- I wonder if that was maybe not something that Phillips really wanted from this central role. Because this Arthur Fleck is so wounded and, and so retiring and seems almost to not be, to just want somebody to love him. It seems almost as if Phoenix is wanting the audience to love him, but that almost makes the end turn where he essentially becomes the Joker we all know and hate today. It doesn't seem right for the character. It doesn't seem as if he wants to be the clown prince of crime. And I was kind of left scratching my head at the end of the movie, like, well, how does... I still don't feel like I see how he gets from point A to point B. He seems like he's beaten down and sad about the world at the beginning and seems like at the end that not much has changed except that now he's called the Joker. And mm. I, I, I don't know mm. if it really fully worked for me. Yeah, I mean, well, I think part of the problem is the movie doesn't have anyone we really should care about. And and so even the the tiniest bit of, of an opening, I, I think we're kind of drawn into Phoenix's character when that role possibly could have been filled by, by somebody else. I, I'm not sure. Here's, here's where I kind of had a problem is the idea of, of the Joker and the mystique of the Joker. And part of the Joker's power comes in, in not really knowing his origin and, and not really being able to predict what motivates him at times and, and what causes him to do what he does. And Heath Ledger, you know, I was walking out of the theater and, and, and people were like, so I could hear people talking. They're like, so who's better? Phoenix or, or Heath Ledger? And it's hard to compare the actual actors because they're, they're two different movies and they're, the characters are designed in a very different way. Heath Ledger, he is, uh, incredibly, uh, scary. I think he's scary because you just don't know what he's going to do next. You don't have a handle on his personality. And by Phoenix kind of opening himself up and being a little more vulnerable. And, and like I said, I think he does a, a fine job. He's not as scary as I think he probably should be. And so at the end of the movie, I'm thinking to myself, okay, he's scary because he has a gun. That's why he's scary. And because he's a little, he's a little out of it, right? A lot out of it. But that's it. The, he's robbed of the power that I think comes with the Joker. And so I don't know how you get over that. Um, if you're doing an origin story with the Joker, and perhaps this is why there are so few origin stories. I think the killing joke, the graphic novel works, works pretty well, but there's still this sense of, uh, you, you know, he falls into a vat of chemicals. And so there's still that element to it. Um, but I think that's probably where my problem with, with the character comes from. He just doesn't seem as, as kind of scary as, I don't know, maybe the Joker's supposed to be. 
I have a theory that the now that I'm thinking about it, the the Joker is almost he's he's interesting because of the what he suggests as as almost a spiritual concept. And essentially, in his most indelible roles, he kind of feels less like a human being and more like a, a force of nature or you know some sort of dark philosophy made flesh and that is doesn't really go very well with a movie that's basically a character study um which isn't to say it couldn't be done but i think phillips never really he doesn't find the spiritual in this film this is a very surface level film as as i've talked about before um and it never really it doesn't dig below the surface on the social issues that it nods at you know there's nods to economic inequality the the callousness of the rich the you know the just isolation from people around us but so there's there's the raw materials there i guess for him to kind of dig into like how how does the joker tap into this the spiritual rot that he sees in in the world like what what is it about him as a person that's able to tap into that and animate it and make it both frightening and also for his followers compelling and phillips never because he doesn't really dig deep into any of these issues he doesn't really find a way to dig deep into joker himself like we're not really interested in joker psychology so much as as we're interested in the the responses that he kindles in in us and in the characters around him and it doesn't seem like phillips is is all that interested in like what the joker says about the human spirit and i think that that's maybe just a fatal flaw in the in this entire project as it was conceived who knows yeah no that's that's well said just kind of getting at the heart of this film, and I think that's really where where the problem lies. Listeners, that is our review of Joker. We would love to hear your thoughts. There are some people who just love this film. It really works for them, and there are some that just absolutely hate it. I would love, we both would love to hear your thoughts. Perhaps we could even discuss those thoughts on the air. So if you agree with us, if you disagree with us, make sure to shoot us a message. You can do that on Twitter if you'd like, at Pod at cbeliefpod, or you could send us an email a little bit longer at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Don't go anywhere. We're going to be back in just a moment reviewing That song is 90s Kids by Christian Rakatorisoa. 
You know, Kevin, I really appreciate all of our listeners who've taken an opportunity to support us on our Patreon page. It's really easy. We have a couple of different levels of donation, and one of our favorites is called the What Can You Buy for $5 level. You get a lot of perks when you support us at the What Can You Buy for $5 level. And I will say this, even if you don't support us, every week you can learn what you can buy for five bucks. So a lot of bonus stuff happening, some free, some on our Patreon page. Kevin, I want to ask you this question. What can someone buy for five bucks? Five dollars would get you a packet of cough drops shaped like the heads of various directors of the French New Wave. Wow. Okay. Yeah, so... <laughs> so, you know, you've got, like, your, your Francois Truffaut, you know, lozenge, and, and your your uh, Melville over there, and you got your Godard. So, you know, if, if you're really into both treating your, your cough and enjoying sucking on a piece of cinema history, that's, uh, that's there for you. Yeah, you know, I... It, it's funny, we talked about Scorsese, a big fan of French New Wave... And I was I was reading, maybe it was the George Lucas biography that I recently read. Uh, but you know, Scorsese's, you know, him and a bunch of these individuals, Brian De Palma, they're into the French New Wave. And then you have, uh, and then you have Spielberg, who's like, Lawrence of Arabia is awesome. And <laughs> I, uh, I think that says all you need to know about their films. But I think that I think it's really great. It's tasty treats, but also uh, you learn a little bit more about film history. That's I, I think it's perfect. Yeah, and let me tell you, I do kind of wish that I had some of those right about now. Listeners, I I do apologize if my voice sounds a little bit odd on the recording this week, but I'm getting over a, a bit of a chest cold, so you get to enjoy a much deeper version of my voice this yeah. week. Well, hey, I think our, I, I know I appreciate just kind of just powering through uh, to talk about Joker. That's the thing. You've been waiting and waiting. Here, here's your shot. <laughs> Uh, listeners, you can support us on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. Like I said, we appreciate all of your support. We also appreciate it when uh, you take the time to uh, write into us and, and let us know uh, what you think of the movies we've been talking about or share something that you've been thinking about with regard to movies or television. This week, we got a tweet from JT Adkins. He's a longtime listener and uh, writes in fairly frequently. And he uh, had some thoughts about our Ad Astra uh, episode that went up a couple of weeks ago. He says, Thank you, Wade, for your lack of enthusiasm for the voiceover in Ad Astra. My specific complaint would be that I liked this voiceover when it was in Dances with Wolves, but this sounded too red off a page, too stilted, an odd choice for the film. So JT is more of a fan of Kevin Costner's voiceover arts than Brad Pitt's voiceover arts, it sounds like. <laughs> I, I want to get JT's perspective on Tree of Life. Um, because yeah, Brad Pitt, I, he, we know he can do a good job. We know he can do a good job. You know, I, I appreciate JT. And one of the things that I, I do wonder is, will there ever be a cut from James Gray where that's tweaked? And we, we talked about, you know, I think it was two years ago, we talked about Blade Runner and one of the cuts having that voiceover and just not working and taking oh, it off. Man. And it's, it's really fantastic off. So who knows uh, what will happen? Yeah, the the 
the studio mandated Harrison Ford voiceover where he just sounds like he hates every syllable <laughs> that he is is reading off the script. Um, I that was that is a bad voiceover for the ages. I I'm going to stand by the fact that while the voiceover in Ad Astra might have been a little bit uh, on the nose, I'm still a fan. So yeah, uh, there's no need for any reevaluation of Brad Pitt's uh, voiceover. Uh, reading from my corner anyway. yeah i mean still a fantastic film still might end up in my top 10 of the year uh, even okay. with you know with with that voiceover so we'll kind of see how it goes thanks jt listeners once again you can tweet us at cbeliefpod or email us seeing and believing capc at gmail.com hey wade and kevin josh larson here from the think christian podcast Just as I love seeing and believing, I think your listeners would really be into our show, which is all about the ways our pop culture fandom resonates with our faith. We cover movies and TV like you guys, but music, sports, video games, it's all in play. Each episode has a theme, spiritual warfare, for example. Then we discuss two recent pop culture items that resonate with that theme. I hope your listeners give the Think Christian podcast a shot and keep up the great work with seeing and believing. ま、とまとまってる and we're back with the second half of our show. The clock is ticking to see if my voice is going to give out before the end of it. I feel good about it, Wade, though. I've, you know, I've been drinking some water i've i've been fortifying my vocal cords for the the segment ahead yes you're going to you're going to need it because this is a wild one kevin <laughs> <laughs> it, it definitely is i i am i'm really curious to hear your thoughts on this film it's a uh, a unique one for sure um it's of course from takashi miike who has at this point directed over a hundred films so He's no slouch, um, and he still has plenty of energy despite all of that. This new film is called First Love. It's a noir-tinged Yakuza film that blends genres as it's telling the story of a young boxer named Leo and a call girl named Monica who develop a relationship while getting innocently caught up in a drug-smuggling scheme over the course of one crazy night in tokyo as is par for the course for noir tinged storylines not everything goes according to plan either for the criminals or for the good guys and when we say that this is one crazy night wade it is definitely a crazy night the two lovebirds are surrounded by a colorful cast of characters worthy of a Tarantino or, or Coen Brothers film. There's the corrupt cop who can't seem to catch a break. There's the hapless gangster whose schemes are constantly producing new loose ends that needs to be tied up. 
And then there's the hard as nails lover of a drug runner whose thirst for vengeance with a crowbar continually, shall we say, escalates throughout the entire film. So, Wade, this is, um, like I said, a Miyake movie. And I'm curious to know what your previous experience is with Miyake, because I think this is the first film of his that we've ever reviewed on Seeing and Believing. So it's a first for us, but I'm curious to, if we can set our review maybe in some sort of context for our listeners, what do you think of Miyake's other films? And uh, what did you think of First Love? Yeah, well, I mean, I I was waiting for his 115th film to come out before I started, uh, so I'm still kind of uh, waiting. Wait, on... waiting for the the complete body of work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, so this is the this is the first Mia K film that I've seen, and it's kind of embarrassing to say that because you've talked about a number of those films, uh, especially Thirteen Assassins. There've been a couple that you've recommended on the show, and I haven't had a chance to watch those yet. I do want to go back and check many of those out because I I do like this film. I, I feel like it balances, Kevin, this line between intrigue, uh, warmth, wacky, and then kind of all-out nuts. Now, not everything works, but it, it definitely seems like Mia K adheres to the principle from The Great One. You miss 100% of the shots that you don't take. He takes all the shots, and like I mentioned, a few don't stick, but a lot do, and this is, I I, I felt like this film was, was a lot of fun. How about you? It's a charming film, for sure. I found myself really on board with the various directions that Miyake takes this movie. It's There's a whole lot about it that really does not work, but... Mike's overall energy for it and the, and the story that he's telling is sturdy enough and twisty enough that even through maybe some of the rockier parts, you're kind of on board for it. And that's maybe a little bit like Mike in general. He's made a lot of movies, which gives him plenty of space to have both some masterpieces and some real duds in there. I was a little bit disappointed in his 2017 film Blade of the Immortal, but like you said, I love 13 Assassins, which is in that same genre, the samurai film. So I I, I run hot and cold on him, and his films tend to run hot and cold in general, but I think First Love is a lot of fun, and it, it comes down to maybe just... It feeling in a lot of places almost like like a lark, like he's he's almost having an Edgar Wright kind of fun time at the movies in in making this film and just seeing where it takes him and seeing how he can play with his actors and and sort of shape their performances in ways to create a whole world that's very vibrant, even as it charts some really. Uh, dark dealings. So I enjoyed it quite a bit as well. Yeah, yeah. well, I will say this too. I, I found the film, uh, I mentioned warmth. I I did find it warm, and I, I probably liked the characters more than I thought I would. At the center of the film is, is Leo and Monica. You mentioned that they are this, this young couple who, uh, I don't think it's a spoiler to say, they start to you know generate feelings for each other. Leo is someone who doesn't think he has long to live, and Monica 
is someone who doesn't really want to live anymore. And so each character has a a journey, even though they don't know uh, what the next step will B, and as they kind of grow closer to each other, and as they kind of work through these issues that they are dealing with, uh, there, there's something there. And so I, I didn't just feel like, oh, this is kind of fun. This is an interesting action film, and there's a lot of twists, and it, it's funny, and this and that. But also, there are some characters that I do care about. And I think it helps too, Kevin, that the people who are making mistakes in this film are not the characters that we're necessarily supposed to be rooting for. So, for me, uh, if, if the main characters are individuals kind of going on a heist and they just kind of mess everything up, it just gets kind of irritating. Here, we have characters who are messing things up, but like I mentioned, we're not rooting for them. And so it's, it's really kind of funny. And so at the beginning of the heist, I think there are two people that are probably supposed to die. And then it just, the body count of who has to die in order for people to get away with this crime, uh, just keeps growing and growing and growing and growing. It's like, oh no, there's another person. Now, now we have to kill. And that's, you know, that's pretty funny in this sort of comical outlandish way of how the exaggerated, uh, storytelling just keeps growing and growing and growing. And so, yeah, so warmth and then also just kind of the straightforward humor of it all. There's one character, Kevin, that <laughs> that yells out, uh, don't get out of this by dying, uh, which is a great line. And we get a lot of those <laughs> great lines throughout the movie. Yeah, it's it's why I, I brought up the Coen Brothers comparison is is because they're for for a couple of reasons. One is the Coens are maestros of the the crime gone bad genre. You know, they they're very good at having some some bad people bumble around, make life a whole lot worse for themselves and for others in in a way that is is both both funny and a little bit uh a little bit off-putting as well but the they managed to thread that needle where where the humor you don't feel as if you're laughing at the bad things they're doing so much as you're laughing at how bad at being bad they are you know it's it's almost as if the the essential stupidity of evil really comes to the fore in their in their films, and I like that Mike taps into that a little bit as well. I also like how, uh, going off of what you said about warmth, how he genuinely does create characters who aren't just sort of generically good or generically evil, but are just sort of very idiosyncratic and feel like actual human beings. So that. Uh, crowbar-toting, uh, avenging fury that I mentioned in in the intro. She is the lover of a drug dealer, and it's, it's of actually, in a weird way, it's a very sweet relationship. The, one, of, one of the first scenes we get in the film is of her badgering this, this drug dealer, this absolute lowlife, to go out to to a restaurant with her and they kind of walk off in the rain under an umbrella and they're kind of just almost like a normal couple until you remember that back home they've you know they've got somebody essentially in sexual slavery and there's drugs involved and it's horrible but they feel like real people which both gives the places that their characters end up by the end of the film it, it makes it feel as if there are actual stakes because they're actual people Similarly, uh, like Leo the Boxer 
is almost like uh, Takashi Shimura in Ikiro. You know, he gets this uh, this really bad diagnosis at the beginning of the film. A doctor tells him that he's dying of cancer, and that frees him up to sort of essentially be a good Samaritan and to protect Monica and get in, drawn in to this crazy Yakuza uh, scheme just to protect her. And he's doing it not necessarily because he's always been such a great person, but because he feels like, well, what else have I got to lose at this point? I'm dying of a brain tumor. And that too feels like a really idiosyncratic way to develop a character who could have felt just kind of stock or or heroic in a way that we've seen before. And I appreciate that Miike takes that tack with a lot of the characters, not just the central ones. Yeah, I mean, there's this great line. It, it, he says, it's like a limiter turned off, and I felt released. And you definitely get the sense that he's someone who's sleepwalking through life, and he hears that he's going to die, and he wants to somehow, in some way, make a difference. And it's it's just kind of pulled off all these inhibitions. The story is funny, too. You know, I think some people are going to like it, some people won't. One way that characters kind of converge and find each other is simply because... They all have this app on their phone that tracks each other's locations. And so I think that uh, Mia Kay finds a way to connect the plot that's, okay, it's really just connecting the dots. But it's it's kind of funny that you have this heist, you have, I don't know, millions of dollars worth of drugs, and people are finding each other because there's an app on their cell phone, which is really funny. I'd also like to point out, the um the photography in the movie uh, just kind of the boldness of that photography and and the color palette a lot of it takes place at night but you get all these kind of lo- lots of fun colors in addition there's also some shots that are purposefully kind of exaggerated uh to make a point uh one the uh, monica she's kind of sitting behind a fence and kind of kneeling down and we get the shot of her and it looks like she's in a cage and Mia K just feels confident here he just feels confident in saying you know what I I know when to just exaggerate this and I know where the line is on this also I think the best shot in the movie is there's you know at the end there's this car that's on a bridge uh, running from the police. And it's it's actually a really beautiful shot just of uh, highlighting loneliness, this car and this huge bridge over this body of water. And then these police cars come and the camera just, <laughs> just watches and they're just, the police cars just keep coming after this one car. I don't even know how many police cars there are, but it just keeps going and going and going and going. And it it's something that's like, like I mentioned, sort of warm. And then it becomes really really funny because there's this endless stream of cop cars so you've got that fun little balance there now there's some plot things that i don't i don't know work too well i think at the end some of the action gets a little confusing but for my money uh i think it's a good introduction uh, to this filmmaker at least for me it makes me want to see more i'm glad you brought up the the action sequences and also mentioned wanting to see more because weirdly i think the the action sequences in this film are kind of 
bad. And that it's it's mainly it's it's my main complaint about this film is that I think the action is shot poorly. There's no real sense of the spatial relations of the characters, all of the hand-to-hand fights are shot in almost close-up and and cut to ribbons, so you can't even really see what's going on, which is odd because the Miike films I've seen anyway are actually, their action sequences are very well shot and choreographed and framed well and are just a joy to behold. So the, the the fact that they aren't in this film is a little bit of a head-scratcher, and I'm kind of wondering what was going on there. If there was some, you know, Miike was rushed, or, or if maybe he just wasn't thinking about the action sequences so much as the scenes where the characters are, you know, having quieter moments. Who knows? But it, it is odd that a director who's typically so adept with those elements does not show that that adeptness here. I think though that those other moments you mentioned where, you know, like the the endless stream of cop cars or this sudden animated interlude that comes out of absolute nowhere and is just sort of it's it's almost like Mike saying like, hey, shaking the odds like, hey, if you're asleep, wake up. This is this is happening. I'm going to, you know, have the this car launch off of a off of a precipice and it's going to turn into an animated film for a little while. That is an example, I think, of what I really appreciate about him is that he, Mike finds ways to just get a, a rise out of his audiences. Sometimes he does that for well-motivated reasons. Sometimes it's kind of just he does it because he can. And that maybe gets back to what I was saying earlier, where there are lots of flaws in this film and lots of techniques that don't work. But I'm still, I'm a little bit glad that those are in there still because they're just, they're, there's kind of a joy in those moments. Uh, dare I say, even a little bit of transcendence in in a moment where a character sort of essentially drives off into the sunset and we don't really have any connection to this character in any meaningful sense. He hasn't really been meaningfully developed um, and it's almost a left turn for the film to suddenly posit some sort of nobility to him. And yet, (laughs) seeing that shot of him driving off into the sunset saying... Uh, a a a catchphrase, shall we say, is kind of effective. Like it's it's an example of how cinema can move you, even on a level that's almost like sub intellectual, on a level that doesn't really can't be analyzed, but just somehow works. And I think Miike's in a lot of ways, he's a master of of doing that. Yeah, I mean, you highlight it well. There are times when the stock villain or bad guy type characters are given uh sort of a shred of humanity right right before they slice each other up and get bloodied and messy that they offer some sort of moment of grace or or mercy to these individuals and are they kind of underdeveloped do we know much about we we don't but yet there's a moment there and we get that with a handful of characters, and you mentioned the character uh, at the end of the film. Well, I'm, I'm excited to check out more of uh, Mia Kay's filmography, Kevin, and really glad that we had a chance to 
review this picture. Listeners, this is just opened. First Love is just opened in limited release across the country. So if you have an opportunity to check it out, let us know what you think at Pod or Seeing and Believing, C-A-P-C at gmail.com. We've reached the end of the show. This is the, the time. This is the point where we offer you, our listeners, a recommendation from the world of television and or film. Kevin, you're up first today. What would you like to recommend to our listeners? My recommendation for this week is a film called Cropsy. This is a 2009 documentary directed by Joshua Zaman and Barbara Barancaccio. And it's uh, one of these films that starts off being about one thing and ends up being about something that's tangentially related, but kind of completely different. So it starts off uh, retelling this urban legend about a killer named Cropsy, uh, an escaped mental patient. It's kind of uh, an urban legend about how this escaped mental patient, you know, got out and killed some children in the woods. And it's sort of this boogeyman that the documentarians set out to sort of examine the origins of it. They visit uh, abandoned mental hospitals in the northeastern part of the country and sort of start digging into the history of mental health care in the United States and sort of how we start thinking about mental illness differently and how mental hospitals like the ones that were shut down in the 1970s were were a part of that. So it's a very interesting film. It's not at all what you would expect from a film that starts off being about a child murderer. It's, it's not a true crime documentary. It's more about a film about urban legends and then more about just the stories that our society tells ourselves about others or the the vulnerable or the the people on the margins and examines what happens to those people when they're given flesh and they're right in front of us so it's a it's a little known documentary but i think it's well worth your time uh 2009's cropsy yeah i'll have to check that one out Uh, that's something that uh, i haven't had a chance to see yet but uh you give it a good uh review it sounds it just sounds fascinating my recommendation this week uh you know i've been thinking about october and halloween and priscilla and i have been trying to get together a list of just kind of some scary movies uh, that we can watch together and we started the month by going through, again, the Scream franchise, a franchise that we both really like. And so I'd like to recommend specifically the first Scream film from 1996 to our listeners this week. Of course, it's directed by Wes Craven with a great screenplay by Kevin Williamson, his his first uh, feature film screenplay. It's about a young woman played by Neve Campbell, and she is terrorized by a killer, of course, in this this ghost mask. And what I love about this franchise is it utilizes horror films and the history of horror films to speak or at least comment on or play with the tropes and the cliches and the storylines that we generally see in horror movies. So it's a very good slasher. We were talking about this last week off the air, Kevin. Uh, One of my favorite slasher pictures. And uh, I like it because it's funny. 
Uh, I like that it plays with the template, at least comments on the horror film template. And then in addition, I've seen this film two or three times. And it's one of those movies that even though I know what's going to happen, uh, it, it's still really tense uh, when these characters get into these scrapes or when they're stalked by, by these individuals. And uh, I like the first one a lot. Second one is great, too. The third one is is not good. Uh, I, it's not good. I just watched that one as well. And I'm about to, we're about to watch Scream 4. I do like Scream 4. I've seen it a couple times and, and that one's a good one. Scream is the best. And so if our listeners are kind of looking for a movie to, uh, watch during October, I, I would say, hey, uh, find Scream if you can, uh, go through the entire franchise. It's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. We were having a conversation about this, uh, I, th- I feel like a couple of weeks ago, um, and I still need to make time for for the Scream franchise. I, like I said, I I've seen the you know the the very famous opening sequence of the first Scream, mm-hmm. and I've seen the exact ending of Scream Four, and I've seen nothing in between those two oh, wow. points. <laughs> so I'm a I'm a Scream neophyte, and uh, you giving me the hard sell on the show means that I need to buckle down and finally catch up with them. Yeah, no, I, I think it's good. So the first one, second one, and third one is on Netflix currently. And the fourth one was on Netflix like a couple days ago. And we logged on it. I think it was yesterday and we were going to start it and it's gone now. So you have to rent that one. But the first three, they're on Netflix and uh, yeah, listeners can definitely check them out. Well, listeners, we do want to thank you for listening to this week's episode. That's all we got. It's brought to you by our Patreon supporters and ChristandPopCulture.com. As always, we appreciate you listening. Make sure to rate and review us on iTunes. That's really huge uh, because when people go through and see that we have a lot of reviews, uh, people have rated us, see that people have left comments, they're more likely to subscribe, more likely to get the word out. So make sure you do that if you haven't had a chance to do it yet. Our producer, as always, is Jonathan Clausen. Kevin, every week I say this. He helps us to search for the sacred on screen. His birthday was just, as of this recording, just a couple days ago. So uh, wish him a very, very happy birthday. He's over there in Florida. So uh, we're excited that hopefully he had a good day. He saw Joker. He was talking to us about Joker. So hopefully that was a good birthday present for him. Uh, For now, listeners, I'm Wade Bearden. My co-host is Kevin McLenathan. And until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.